So we got the backlog, so this might be a little bit in the past. A couple weeks. uh, Bill O'Reilly has had a lot of advertisers pull out. Now, they were on Fox News in the first place, so they are obviously reptilian snake people in human suits. But... Let's cheers Buy to re- gold. Yeah, let's <laughs> cheers. Mortgages. Let's cheers to reptilian people in lizard suits recognizing that morality exists enough that you probably need to pull out of that show considering what he did. Amen. God bless America. Hey everyone, welcome to the Mix Six. I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is the pre-party where in our podcast where we drink six beers, have six conversations, and get drunk. Yeah. He said it, not me. Right. Um where we do that, we typically establish some facts, some rating system. We do some news. That's what I got here today. So it occurs to me, uh, in episode fourteen, because you know we're really quick off the gun there. Uh, that we probably should have a video on our Patreon page, because I saw that that was a link I didn't click when I made the Patreon page. Right. Uh, also, people watch things on the internet now. Yes, it's yes. sort of it's an a annoying habit. That's it's like a Mobius strip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it occurs to me that we probably need some sort of audiovisual component, which is bad, because I have a face made for podcasts, and Aww. also bad because uh, not very good at editing that horrific things. I don't even know how one would go about doing that. Yes. So uh, all of you listeners... I can, but the uh, effort. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In not having the self-hatred for myself that I do... Right. Uh, ...are probably better at picking the things we say that would get people to try listening to the Mix 6. That's so right. I'll make you a deal. If you cut us a trailer two to three minutes long and we like it, we choose your trailer, we will blast out your name all over social media... And I, In will, your trailer. I will personally refund your entire Patreon contribution for one year from the date we pick your trailer. Uh, in the what I'm calling the Mix Six Trailer Contest. Uh, so like a morning zoo crew, we've got some audience participation with prizes and That's shit. Right. There's a dunk tank. Yeah, we got sound effects, which I'm sure producer Ross is going to add in. Right. Mm. <laughs> yep, yep. That's the sound effect of producer Ross not adding a sound effect. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so that's I'm officially announcing the Mix Six trailer contest. We'll put it on the show notes for today, and uh, we very much look forward to seeing you uh, edit us into yes. various imagery uh, and audio combinations. I want to make a quick plea because I I know how this is going to go, and frankly, I'm ready for much of it. If Facebook and our mentions are any indicator. It's going to be two minutes and 58 seconds of s'mores things, and then two seconds of you telling me I'm wrong about Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) And so I need it to not be that, and I'm one of three voting board members. All right. You need a third thing. Get a third thing in there. One more thing. Okay. That is all. Thank you kindly. All right. So uh, speaking of rating systems. Speaking of rating systems. uh, We're going to have a a travel segment in here. Uh, So I asked uh, my host for the travel segment to lend me their, if they were doing the Mix 6, their five-point rating systems. So I got one that was uh, from Adam, 19th century presidents. That was Polk, Grant, Quincy, Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. One, two, three, four, five. Wow. I got one from Laura, uh, lovely Laura. Uh, it's Timothy Zahn, Alfred Bester, and Leckie, Louis McCaster Bujol, and Ursula K. Le Guin for science fiction authors. 
and then I have never felt dumber than the yeah, last. Yes, they were both way smarter than me, so I chose to do one instead, and it's cat toys. Yeah. So here we go. Number one. <laughs> The love glove. Meow. <laughs> it's this creepy latex thing with all these uh, plastic filaments on the end. You saw me touch my cat with it. He absolutely. I gave it to you for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, Not yeah. A you you gave me the love glove. I forgot yeah. it was you. I'm sorry. God, well, someone's gonna. I haven't regifted it because I had to bury it because my cat was terrified of it. <laughs> all of this sounds like a weird sex. Thing. It was so interesting because it's you, like an oven mitt, but you use it to like brush excess fur off the cat. But the cat like. Was obviously terrified of it, but not ter- it too terrified to run. It sort of froze in like a uh, like Lovecraftian horror mm-hmm. at the love glove. So not the a Lovecraft fan. glove. Yeah, um, <laughs> nice. Uh, the cat's meow, which is basically just like a circular tarp with a little motor in the middle of it with a string of the mouse that runs around the tarp. Obscuring the motor, making the mouse run, and it sort of switches directions really quickly. It's enormously loud, uh, but the cat is continually engaged by it. Does not play with it, but looks at it off-puttingly. So the cat's meow is a two. Yeah, the cat's okay. meow is a two. Uh, three is going to be weasel ball. You've all seen weasel ball. Sure it's thing. a ball. It's got a weasel. I have a weasel ball, nose, and I don't have a cat tail, moving yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, solid. You're a fan of it, even if the cat's not. Amen. Four's laser pointer. Duh. A classic. Uh, you're gonna get antics. Shit's gonna get knocked over. Yep. The cat's gonna have a good time. And five mouse on a string. Classic. Which is basically the analog laser pointer. That's right. It's it's the original. The OG. Uh, the OG cat. Right. So we're gonna go with cat's toys because I'm no cat dumber than I would like to be. Whatever. And uh, apologies to Adam and Lori. You had great lists. Right. We tried to do 19th century cat toys, Adam, but we couldn't. We couldn't find <laughs> them. Wooden yeah. ninjas. <laughs> cats love those. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so anyways, now that we know Absent. the rating system and we're looking forward to your videos, it's time for us to grab some beers and talk about stuff. We'll see you on the other side. Whale teeth. Anyway. <laughs> Caleb, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Ballast Point Brewing Company's Sea Rose Tart Cherry Wheat Ale. Tart cherry wheat ale. That's a, a lot of descriptions. Uh oh. Okay. And it's a laser pointer. Whoa! I'm getting really into cherry. And here's the thing: I kind of hate that it's a laser pointer because you just informed me that they, the Ballast Point Brewery, is a big investor in Paul Ryan. There, there appears to be, based on things that I've read, a a close tie between some Paul Ryan fundraising and the Ballast Point parent company, which bought Ballast Point for about a billion dollars, like a year or two ago. So it's a begrudging laser pointer, not. Unlike a cat that's not really into it, but Super. has a instinctual urge to right. go after that little red light, I'm going to drink this beer, even though it makes me sad that I've succumbed to my baser instincts. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Not uh, unlike a rose, a beautiful thing, lost in the sea, which is in and of itself a little melancholy. Okay. <laughs> wow. Um, and while you drink that, we're on to segment one, which is Dissecting Our Fun, which is our board game segment. And today we're going to talk about a game that you and I have played a number of times, and despite or maybe because of its simplicity, we keep coming back to and really enjoying and the game is Machi Koro. Yes. And I want to talk about kind of the ins and outs of Machi Koro, how to play the game today, but I also want to talk about like why we enjoy Machi Koro so much. Let me start by saying that in terms of property and or real estate games, of which Machi Koro is very much in the vein of Settlers of Catan uh, and Monopoly, uh, along with some of the resource management stuff, how much money do you have and how much money do you really want to put into things, 
there's a comfortable space between Settlers of Catan, which is probably a gateway game. We've talked about this for a lot yeah. of people. It feels more robust and comprehensive than your standard game night for families. Yes. And Monopoly, which is just a, a self-induced you punch, have sin, punch you to the penis. You must be punished. That's right. Yes. Yes. There's a space in there which is still feels like you can very much play it with uh, family game night or with people who want to play a board game but didn't come over to your house to do something deep and comprehensive. You could teach your parents Machi Koro. I, I have taught my, my mom Machi Koro, and well, she loves go. it. I also feel like you could teach a six-year-old Machi Koro, and it's bright and it's fun, and it's kind of engaging in how the mechanic works. So, so Machi Koro is, at least on my end, a recommendation for those people who are looking to get other friends into board games or, or who are looking to get into board games themselves but don't want to take a deep dive yet. Machi Koro is a really, really nice space. Agree? Yes. Okay. So here's how Machi Koro works. Um, not unlike Settlers of Catan or Monopoly, it's a dice-based roll mechanic. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to roll numbers, either on one die or two, depending on your choice. Uh, and based on the cards that you have in front of you, each of which is assigned a number, which corresponds to a number on the die, you will get money for having rolled that number. So if, for example, you have one of the pieces of property you could buy that is assigned to the number one, and you roll a one on that roll, you get however much money is associated with that piece of property, which triggers on rolling one. And there's a secondary information mechanic in that it's not every roll. So some cards you get money on any roll, mm -hmm. uh, which are extremely valuable. Some cards you only get you only get money if you rolled it. So if it's like you might only get money if you personally rolled the That's two right. versus anyone rolled a two, you get the amount of money from the bank. And then there's red cards. An attack mechanic. <clears throat> which actively steal money from other players, sometimes if anyone rolls it, sometimes if you roll it specifically. That's right. Um, so you are sort of playing this probability game, but it is far more parsable than it would be if you were playing, say, some monstrous roll-and-move hellscape like Absolutely. Monopoly. Yep. Um, you can kind of make your choices based on you know where this d6 or this 2d6 is going to land absolutely uh your win mechanic of course are these landscape items that you're trying to construct the first one that constructs all of them wins and just so you're not burning points to get the victory points they also have clear demonstrable game effects right so you can go big and go for the airport right out of the gate and then like have a crap ton of money and then move on down or you can you know do various things like that it's very much about do you wait and save up money, therefore passing up property on the board right. in order to buy one of the one properties that counts as victory points? Or do you buy that property as soon as you're able and then keep spending money continually to add more and more property, increase your probability on the dice? It's an interesting uh, push-pull mechanic. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've talked in the past about games where you really get the opportunity to kind of look around the table and see what other people are doing and determine if that's the strategy you want to go for or if you want to make an adaptive or reactive response to that. Try, try to find a different strategy. And so one of the things I like about Machi Koro is that as you're building your version of this city and you are trying trying to figure out which of the four to five, six landmarks you need to build to win first, you can look around the table and figure out what other people are also trying to build as well. And the question becomes, do I follow them? Do I kind of move in step with them? Or do I try to take a different, different approach to them? That also applies to the smaller, more tactical game. So, for example, I don't play a lot of attack cards. I don't, I don't look for a lot of the red cards um, because I don't think it's a lot of fun to take money from other people. But uh, just last weekend, we played Machi Koro, and you went hard in the paint on red cards. Sorry. No, you're not, and it's fine. And what <laughs> ended up happening... 
kind of interestingly is that while Sarah and Brandy and myself were sitting around only focused on generating money based on our roles or table roles. I was only focused on taking it. From you were waiting for us to get kind of gobs of money and then hoping for better roles where you could just take our money instead. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so what I appreciate about the mechanic is that while it's simple, while it's very limited, and while there's really only one move, which is roll the dice – there is a level of adaptability and a level of responsiveness in the game that isn't just about expand the number of numbers which are available to you by way of dice rolls, but also how do you want to collect your money and what then to do with it. Uh, like most games, if the dice can screw me, they will, and often that does happen in Magikoro. Sure. Uh, so it's not a game without randomness, but there's enough tactical choice in picking which card to buy yeah. and win. <clears throat> That you can sort of engage yeah. with that kind of uh, tactical choice while still having the, you know, the odd number that comes up great and gets you a ton of coins. For sure. Yeah. Let me also say this. Not for nothing. Uh, I'm pretty sure Somachi Koro has a base game. There are at least two expansions, maybe three expansions. I don't know. You've got that deluxe edition. Do you remember how many expansions are in that? I think there's four. Man. But okay. mechanically, they only add like two or three things. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Machi Koro says expansion, they mean just expanding. We're going to make the game longer. That's right. We're going to add more cards. Yeah, there's some interesting tactical choices that they add, That, but like it, the game just lasts longer. That's right. And I, I'm into that. Like, if you like Machi Koro and you buy the expansion, you're going to get more Machi Koro. That's it's right. It's not like a completely different game that changes everything. It's just, damn, there's a lot of... It, uh, expansion. The one thing I will say about the expansions, though, is that you got to shuffle that shit carefully because yeah. there are purple cards, of which there are multiple in the deck, but you can only have one in your list of real estate. Yeah, and they're pretty powerful, but they're also pretty expensive. Yes, and the way the expansion works, instead of laying out all the cards and having a finite list of properties, with the expansion you make a big draw deck, and you can have ten types of property on the board at any time. So if I draw a sushi bar, I can, and then I draw another sushi bar, it's going to go on top of the other sushi bar, and I'm going to keep drawing. Right. However, once I get to the hamburger stand and I get up to my 10, I'm done drawing cards. And we got into a weird glut where, like, six of them were purple. It didn't feel like the, the amount of available property was moving. Yeah. And, so, and none of us wanted the properties that were available. And so yeah. there was kind of a sit-and-wait mechanic for yes. a bit until one of us could make enough money to buy something which would change that which was available. But it was the first time we'd played that full expansion deck, yeah. so I don't think that's Machi Koro's like, probability mechanic getting off. Yeah. I think it's just we didn't shuffle the purples hard enough. As a point of entry, and this goes back to the comments I was making earlier, earlier regarding kind of the treating Machi Koro as as an entry level game for some people. I think the base game is like 19.99. It might be 29.99, but the expansions are reasonably cheap, 14.99 or something, and it's just a really fun, pretty game. Bright colors. Oh, man. The yeah, the art, art is, is pure fun. pure iconography. It's awesome. Yeah. Like if there was a SimCity game that had the building art that yep. is in a Machi Karo card, I would be there in seconds. Absolutely. Also, it would mean there was a City City game that Maxis didn't make, and that would be great. Right. Because uh, they're terrible. Also a game changer there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Machi Karo, I couldn't recommend it highly. No. All this to say, Machi Karo, yes from us, hard yes from us, I mm -hmm. might even say. Definitely a good point of entry. On that note, time to get more beer. We're on to something new. Spencer, what are you drinking? 
So we're we're with an evil twin brewing company, No Hero Oatmeal Stout. That's where we are right now. Um, I'm going to tell you that I've already broken our rules. I've already tried this thing because I wanted to get into this. It was a long pre-party. It was a really long pre-party. You got thirsty. I wanted to party also. Um, so I'm ready to rank this thing. i got to be honest with you. We have a terrible love-hate relationship with Evil Twin Brewing. I think I gave that Dr. No Sour last time like a four. I was even thinking about heading in the five direction because it was really drinkable. I know that the Pachamama Porter, which I believe was a <laughs> matchup between Evil Twin and someone else some months ago, I did not like. I'm sorry to say that uh, we are ping-ponging back towards the Pachamama Porter here with Evil Twin, and I apologize deeply because I do want to love this. This is a this is a like low two, maybe even a one for me. This might be a love glove. Here's the thing about this beer. On the front end, well, you go, I just figured out the title right, to right. the episode. Right, maybe there. even a love glove. This might be a love glove. Right. Um, here's the thing. Like on the front end, you go, oh, well, this is a nice little stout, and then something happens chemically in your face, and it tastes like a wet dog. And so I am drinking a wet dog love glove. That's that is how I feel about this beer. Oh, poor evil twin! Come on, C's get degrees, evil twin. Not this one. Shoot for the middle sometimes. <laughs> right? F's get thrown in the I trash mean, halfway through a segment. I appreciate you going hard and going home, but I'm going to finish it because I'm here to get fucked up. But <laughs> but I'm not pleased. <laughs> Caleb, what are we talking about? Uh, in getting lit, your number one segment vote. Thank you very much. You guys really wanted to hear us talk about books. You like books, and you don't care who knows. You are literal library fans. Yeah. Yeah. Taking off your shirt, throwing a book in the air, and just screaming world star. You're ready it's to fight about it. so crazy. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're going to talk about a book uh, genre that we have to read far too much of, uh, to the point that it distracts from reading things we would actually enjoy. That's right. How-to books. However, there are occasionally good ones. Right. Uh, and I feel like there are a number of professions, you in the world of business and in education, mm-hmm. me in education, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there's many others in which how-to books are a staple, if not required reading by your boss during some sort of professional development. Yep. How does one separate in the world of literature the glut of how-to crap of people leaving the profession for publishing degrees yeah. in an attempt to escape and somehow writing about how to do it well uh, from – Actual useful information. We might be only to be contextual on this. We might only be able to say according to business or according to education, right? But I, I don't. I don't think we can come up with any kind of unified theory here. No. Well, uh, I don't know. We can certainly maybe. give it a shot. Yeah. I mean, you know, what? What, what for nothing if not for a try? Um, I've been thinking a lot about this since we we talked about this topic a couple of days ago, and. I uh, first I, I need to say this that the the first time I moved into uh, the consulting field and was propositioned with the idea that I ought read a how to book uh, a, an explanation for how to business I was immediately off put by the idea and one of the reasons is because I remember taking teaching seminars where I had to read people like philosophically or emotionally or pragmatically reflect on the practice of teaching as part of the course curriculum. It does not get worse. It is the worst shit I've ever read. In fact, we're having a garage sale in a couple of weeks. And there are a number of like the art of teaching books that Frank, I just want people to take from me. I don't need money for it. I feel like in some ways I should actually ask people to – I should give people money <laughs> for taking those things off my hands. So so when I moved into the consulting field, I thought, well, this has never gone well. Um, the, the, I've never run into one of these things that was meaningful uh, and useful. And yet what I found 
is that the consulting field, and maybe I was just reading bad teaching ones, is the business field, I should say, is full of some pretty good ones. It's also full of all of the bad ones. Um, and, and, and it might be the industry most ripe for just substance. I mean, just a volume of shit on how to. See, right? like, I despair at the level of, not level, but the amount of good how-to teaching books compared to, like, the glut of, like, I don't want to be in the classroom anymore, please. Just yes. let me write some shit down, publish it, and I'll, I'll take this pittance and go. Yes. Like, uh, shit I have to read for pre-dev and right. like it, it's it's fucking mind-numbing i but then i go to borders or well i don't go to borders anymore. No, no one goes i go to, to barnes anymore. and nobles uh and i just see like the business how to self-help shit just go into the fucking vanishing point i'm yeah. like this can't all be good no like, it's most of it is trash from what i can tell i, w- I would say 97 percent of it is just abject trash yeah you know, I'm familiar with one category of these sort of books, and that would be screenwriting books. Uh, and I have a ton of them that yeah. you've thrown away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to get give these to the library unless you want them, Caleb. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, because there's there's basically like – it's it, for me, screenwriting how-to books are like what percentage of these are regurgitating Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces? That's right. And the lower – generally, the better they are. Right. But most of them are like at least 50%. Oh, well, at this stage, he's in the belly of the beast. That's and, right. And then looking he, for the boon. Yeah, get, looking for the potion to bring back and blah, blah, blah. Death of the mentor. Um, and yeah, it's a special kind of hell. Uh, <laughs> as is this beer. <laughs> as I choke it down. So, so here, here, here are some of the rules that I've started to use when picking – if I'm going to read a business book, a how-to book next, what am I looking for? What am I not looking for? One of the immediate things I've noticed is I don't want to read a how-to book, and this might be a unifying theory, for teaching or for business, if it is some wildly successful but obviously aberrations story of how they succeeded and made things work. Oh, my God, yes. I do not want to read about how the .01% of people who did this thing found a way to do this thing because I don't give a shit and I'm not the 0.01% and I'm super okay with that. So no money balls? No, no, no money balls and no, no like, oh, what's that? You were working in Silicon Valley and got a lucky break and now you're the CEO president of some startup that someone somewhere gave a billion dollars to to get going and now you want to tell me how to make it in business? It sounds like I just need to roll the dice and hope they come up me. So the education version of that is I had to read a book once, which I wrote an entire book making fun of uh, (laughs) with No Soul Left Behind. That was about the success of the Kagan Cooperative Learning Program. There is some success in there. Some. Some. Um, But it was basically talking about how you can do this like – Learning community with all that kind of stuff and do those keg and shit and life will turn around. And it's about the Chicago school district. It's all about how de- fucking depressed and awful it is. And then there's just like two years later after doing this program, everything changed around. Right. It's the magic bullet. It's yeah. terrible. It's got shitty kerning, kerning. The margins are like two and a half inches, like a kid trying to fucking skirt on his assignment. Mm-hmm. It, the writing is just like passive voice fucking drivel. And then you look at the actual school district. Guess what happened between those two years? They got an enormous concrete plant built, which employed nearly everyone. And then, because they wanted concrete in the state of Illinois to do it, they got an enormous government subsidy to the concrete plant that was then split amongst the entire population and the school district. So you know what cured everything? Money. Right. Money fucking cured everything because lightning, you know, whoa, God, I can't believe I realized it. Right. 
money's a factor in how well your kids learn. Yeah. Like, oh, poverty sucks. It it sucks everything. Right. And like and that's the moral of the book. Once you like look once you Google this place, it's like, nah, it's bullshit. They just got a shit ton of money. Right. Like, so, so if you're the outlier, I good for you. I don't I, I, I'm sorry. What do I what do I learn from right. this? I don't it's not that some, Kagan's magic. Like that's right. it's that I want someone to magically dump a concrete factory with a bunch of money that's on it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The yeah, the major takeaway of the outlier aberration book is win the fucking lottery. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so that's cool. So anyways, I'm not saying that those things don't have kind of like nuggets of wisdom in there and that things there aren't things to be learned from those people who have taken exceptional circumstances and managed them well, because that is half the battle. I'm just saying that by and large, that's not what I'm looking for. Alternatively, what I have found really useful. So two business books that come to mind that were kind of revolutionary for me as I got into the industry and started to learn how to talk to people about business, which I think is 85% of the game. One, and this is a seminal text, and I think I've talked about it before on the podcast, was Jim Collins' Good to Great. Yeah, Um, you did that. Yeah, and I just think that there's something very wise about the book. I also think that it's a nice combination of kind of anecdotal and empirical evidence to show you how really successful companies got to be more successful companies. And and there's some some longitudinal approach to the whole thing. Having said that, I know that some of those businesses are now gone and shit happens. I I don't blame that on Collins or, or diminish what Collins did. But the ones that have been really meaningful to me, that have changed the way I do my job day to day, are the ones that are really fucking hyper-tactical with some good explanation of how to be hyper-tactical. So here I'm thinking of Traction. Um, Traction has been, for me, like the most meaningful, game-changing book in how I just learn to run day-to-day stuff for the operations of a business, or even as simple as how to run a really fucking effective meeting. And the the book makes no bones... Gino Wickman, I think, is the author. makes no bones about it. This is a book for people who are trying to figure out how to start and run a business and who want to take that business to the next level. So here are all the things that I saw and I've done for 40 plus years or however the fucking long he's been doing this thing from nine to five to make businesses work. And it is just tactical shit from page to page. It has been transformative for me. There's no hubris. There's no, if you do this, you'll necessarily succeed. But there is a, this stuff works because I've used it and I use it over and over again. And so if you can do this stuff and you can do it well, there's a strong strong possibility here that you're going to be better than companies that can't get their shit organized, like how to set a direction and stick to it, how to effectively strategically plan, how to set goals and track against goals. It, it is uh, bare bones. It is practical to a fault, probably. That has been a more meaningful thing to me. Does that translate for you in teaching? The like, here's how to do the thing. I um, it does sort of translate. But here's the thing: I don't want a middle ground. So when I read oh, something yeah. with teaching, it needs to be strictly tactical. So yeah. I'm thinking something like um, Kathleen De Beers' "What to Do When Kids Can't Read," mm-hmm. which is just. It does what it fucking says on the tin. There's like some heartbreaking couple paragraphs that she starts every paragraph, sure. every chapter, and is like, I didn't know what I was doing. Here's this kid I failed to teach how to read. And like, I really love that because like another thing teaching books can do is make you feel like a piece of shit and that like your, oh man, your face. This beer makes me want to vomit. And not <laughs> a little so bit, sorry. but a lot of it. Oh God, you poor thing. I'm like not breathing in or out <laughs> in between drinks because I don't want my, my nose. <laughs> Just so it's it. moved to a love glove. Oh, yeah. It's definitively a love glove. I feel like that happens for me a lot, that I'm unwilling to name a one, but then I become infinitely more willing as I drink You're more. a good soul. I'm trying <laughs> to help. Uh, anyway. 
As I was saying, Sorry. Um, it's fantastic. It's what to do when kids can't read. It's got these like it starts with these segments with this kid named George that she failed to teach the read that she's like writing these like heartbreaking apologies to, and then I'm just like, oh my god, I don't need another fucking inspirational. This is how you right. get through the first or not inspirational. Yeah. And then she's like, look, this is the hardest job on earth. Here's why: it's because you when you're reading, you're doing something like eighty to ninety two cognitive skills separately, uh, but you're combining them all into a single aspect. Here's the list of those skills. Here's diagnostic tests to find out what skill they're particularly missing. And then here's a list of pre-made worksheets and activities that you can literally read from yes. a script that you do when that kid can't do that. And I'm only going to go up to sixth grade because I'll be honest, if you're above that level, you probably got into, you probably know how to read that well. And you, that's probably why you got into teaching. Right. But you probably don't know how to fucking do anything below sixth grade level. And in your high school levels, they probably don't have sixth grade reading. Level. Awesome. And I'm just like, holy shit. Yes. Yeah. It's just a playbook. Yeah. Give me that. Playbook. Yeah. I want yeah. a playbook. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah. I, I have options to pick now. This is going wrong. I don't know why. Here's how I figure why. Yep. Here's how I do that. Or our lessons on how to do like um, read aloud reading tests with mark uh, markups to like see where kids miss on words or when they do substitute words and yep. things like that. Hardcore playbook. I want that or I want total abstract philosophical think fest. I want like Paulo Freer, like sure. uh, yeah. Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I want Neil Postman, The End of Education. I want shit that's going to like shape my philosophy of why I'm doing this. Not your personal reflection on how tough it was. Like Jonathan Kozel's a good writer. I will at least give him that much. Sure. But like, yeah, it's real fucking tough to teach in a Harlem school different because like, I don't need to read the 18th book about it. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's shitty. For sure. It doesn't do anything. Teach me how I should be making decisions. Yep. Like, define my philosophy for making decisions. Or give me options to choose from as I make the decisions with that philosophy. Yeah. Anything that strives for a middle ground fails on both fronts and then finds a third front and fails on that one, too. No, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that, yeah, that's my premise for educational reading. I, uh, I hadn't thought about it like that. And as they think about for like the, the, the business industry, can I look at books and go, well, this was largely just a philosophical approach to you know insert business issue? No, but maybe it's because I've been uh, – I, I learned this early enough about myself that I wanted something wildly tactical all the time. Maybe I've actively avoided those things, and now I kind of want to test this theory and see if there aren't some things that I've missed here. But, um, like, there, there's stuff in the middle ground that I'm like uh, – I'm, I'm reading a book recently that's, like, basically, like, the – uh, the how to bring Silicon Valley thinking into schools, be disruptive yeah, in the man. classroom, and it's just like right. go away nonsense. Don't I think that. they misspelled grammar in it. Like mm-hmm. it's fucking <laughs> bullshit. Like yeah. I printed zines that were more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like and yeah, I, I just don't go for the middle of the road. Like teach me what it means. Pick a lane. Yeah, go to epistemology levels, or like give me literally a just thick. Like a fake book for right. a musician. Like, give me a thick, these are the standards, do this. Yep. I, I don't want you to find the middle ground. No. Because you're just going to fail on both. No, I think you're totally right there. Pick, pick one, go hard in the paint. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Uh, and speaking of picking one, Caleb is going to pick another one, and I might choke this one down so that <laughs> I can do that as well, and we'll be back in just a minute. Caleb, what is that um, very interesting-looking can that you have there? I am drinking Defiance Brewing's uh, Fuzzy Knuckles, a imperial stout brewed with cocoa nibs and coffee. So, still water roll. Haven't tried it yet. I hope, hope it is better than the stout that I am drinking. He's thinking. Much better. Okay. Good. Much better. Well, low bar. 
Um, doesn't hit me as hard as I'd like a stout too, mm-hmm. but it's quite good. It's drinkable. It's a uh, weasel ball. Weasel ball, which is another great name for a beer. You're welcome to find TM Scaban TM. So, all right. Yeah. Well, while you drink that, we're on to section three beer three for us. We're uh, we're doing travel hangover again. We did this a couple of episodes ago when I got back from Denver. We spent some time running through some beers, talking about some adventures, talking about the city a little bit, too. And you just recently got back from D.C., the nation's capital, Mm -hmm. uh, epicenter of whatever the fuck is happening right now in America. Uh, (laughs) And I assumed that you— Don't hold them against them, I guess. No, no, because D.C. is actually a lot of fun. Like, I've always enjoyed D.C., and I do not like cities with lots of people in them, which is the definition of a city. Um, and so I figured you'd probably want to talk about some of those beers. I know you tried like 400 uh, and probably talk a little bit about the D.C. experience. So let's jump into this travel hangover. So, yeah, I went to D.C. as a result of the Red Markets Kickstarter. Uh, Laura and Hashtag Adam, Red Markets. Hashtag Red Markets. Uh, Laura and Adam were kind enough to buy my ticket out so I could run a game for them and their lovely friends. How and cool. It went great. Uh, not an RPG podcast, though, an alcoholism podcast. Hey, so we got we to adjust the focus. Let's but them boozes. they uh, were fantastic hosts and, indeed, and indeed, along with fantastic food and great board games and right. good company and showing me around all the touristy shit, even though I have no doubt they have seen it billions of times. And every, every day. Yeah. Uh, they they suppressed eye rolls and, and did so anyway, so good for them. Um, but they uh, ha- gave us a whole day that was just a brewery tour. Man. And it was great. If I lived in D.C., that it would have to, every day would have to be a brewery tour. Mm-hmm. I don't live in D.C., and D.C. makes every day a brewery tour for me. So, uh, and they drove me around for the brewery tour, which was holy heroic. Shit. You got a chauffeur for this I thing? Got, because uh, I did not realize D.C. traffic was the thing until we got off the airport concourse and into their car, and it took an hour to get to their house. And right. I'm like looking at Google Maps, and we're like... Two miles, yeah. Um, man, it's it's a thing. The metro exists for a reason. Yeah, like, it is just gridlock show. everywhere. But um, they they suffered. Adam drove us around. It was great. Um, so we hit up uh, a number of breweries. They were great. We w- the first one we went to was DC Brow, lovely little tasting room. Uh, basically, their tasting room is just a bay on their loading dock that they've converted into a bar. So you're like, it, it looks like you're going around the back of an industrial district. Wow. Uh, probably the most, uh, charming tasting room we went to, though. I really liked it. It was my yeah. speed. Small? I'm guessing it was pretty small. It was small. Then. Uh, yeah. I'd spent a lot of money on vacation already, so I didn't buy a shirt, though I wish I'd bought a shirt, because they had a shirt that said, Fermentation Without Representation, and that's just a Holy solid, shit. That's just a solid fucking pun, DC God. Brow. You know what? I imagine someone thought of that and then decided to open a brewery. Yes. Like, that was such a good joke, because someone was like, we could fucking open a brewery. And it was, it was really good. Uh, so, DC Brow was pretty good. Um, now, not a surprise... Uh, my favorite beer that I tried there was the Pin Quarter Porter, oh, a weird. solid four. Whoa. Uh, liked it quite a bit. Uh, but the second one that got a four there was the Corruption IPA, one of the better what? IPAs I've ever had. And like, it wasn't like a not, but it wasn't like an IPA that failed to be an IPA. It was clearly better. You know, Sarah, lover of I IPAs do and hops, Sarah. similar along your taste. Right. She also very much enjoyed it. So, well, I, I, I'm sorry. I know this isn't totally the purpose of this segment, but but you have I have ordered IPAs and you have you have daggered me with your eyes. So, what was it about this IPA that was distinguishing to you? It was bitter, but in the realm of taste, 
like I got things past the bitterness. Right. It wasn't so many bitumens, my face imploded, and then palette record. We yeah, it wasn't yeah. a palette wrecker. And there were other, you know, hints of like it was lighter than that. And right. it was like, but like it wasn't not an IPA. It was clearly an IPA. Right. So okay. I very, I very much enjoyed that. Color me surprised. Um, there were some other threes and twos. So I'm, I'm just going to hit the highlights. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, from there, we went to Atlas Brewing. Now this was a nice tasting. That room. sounds fancy. Uh, blue moon levels of production value without blue moon level of tasting room tastelessness, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. like wood grain, lovely bar, <laughs> yeah. you know, got windows. You can see the whole brewing process. Oh, I like that. Quite a bit, quite a bit higher, uh, grade than DC brow. Um, very Denver vibe in there. Everyone oh, brought sure. their dogs. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone was riding a you know, geared bike, uh, many a beard, uh, to be abounded. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, many to, many a beard to be abounded. Yeah. I'm an English teacher. Right. Um, what can you say? Uh, so, uh, for there, the ones I really liked was the, uh, silent neighbor stout, mm-hmm. which is four. You do love some stouts. Uh, lovely on nitro. Tried it on both. And <sighs> I know you're not a nitro I fan. I can't do Nitro just tastes flat. I get that it's supposed to be creamy. It tastes this flat. This is a different... We need a whole professional drinking segment for we this do. nitro debate, because I'm fanatic. For once, I will yell at you about something, yeah. is how I feel. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would be a total departure. <laughs> I want to see Spencer yell. Come at me, bro. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I had a rowdy hop-forward rye beer. Another four. Jesus. Very good. And then this one took me completely out of left field. Here we go. Cezanne de Brett. Oh, yeah. Uh, sort of a cidery aftertaste, but I am not a Cezanne guy. Right. Like, I am less of a Cezanne guy than I am less of a sour. Like, like I am... You're coming around on sours. I'm coming around on sours. I'm not coming around on Cezanne's. Right. Like, but Cezanne de Brett, really good. Pretty great. Um, three stars. Uh, I had a Southern Bell pecan that was pretty good. Otherwise, pretty forgettable. Right. I'd give it an equivalent to a, like a lost signal in Springfield. Oh, is this a new brewery? Three stars? Yeah, three oh, okay. stars. Yeah. Uh, Finding the legs. Uh, we did Denizens. Uh-huh. Uh, they had a triple called the Third Party Triple that was excellent. Uh, and what I, the fuck? Like, I feel like you left Springfield and forgot what kind of beer you liked and didn't like. I know. That's the thing. DC does beers I typically don't like better than most other places. But beers I'm really into. Not so much. They're sort of on the low end. Is there like a carnival like approach to this whole thing for you? Uh, you know, in I, the it, moment, I'll just try whatever. Yeah, I can't say. Well, that's the thing. It wasn't though. I was like, just like I'm gonna try whatever I want. I got flights. Right. I got like a, a tasting range. So the way to go. I tried 25 beers in DC. Jesus. But I didn't die because most right. of them were like three ounce pours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I took copious notes the entire time. Which is great. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that triple was pretty good. Everything else, sort of like threes and twos. And there's like oatmeal stouts on there, red ales, porters. Uh, Dennis is brewing. It was threes across the board for those, but the triple is wow. what knocked me up before. So I guess if I had a thesis for drinking in D.C., right. it is that, you know, they do beers that I typically can't stand. Yeah. In a way that I really enjoy. Um then uh, I just had some stuff at a restaurant. It wasn't at a brewery. Uh, I tried a Melon Goza uh, from Anderson Valley. Yeah. Anderson Valley, Brittany Melon Goza. It was a four, but like in my estimation, it may have risen to a five because it was a very wow. good Goza. Well, so Goza's not a thing for you before you go to D. Like literally, this is what happened in my life. You left for D.C. and did not like sours. 
And then last week or two weeks ago, you're like, hey, let me try that tower. I'm kind of coming around. It was that Brittany Melangoza. Wow. It was pretty good. Well, that's good news. Yeah, which is and, and kind of crazy because, like, the flavor was melon, mm-hmm. which is the Kmart of fruits. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's fucking But it's, actually, it's got a nice, like, lightness to it that I think is goes all well. melons or just, uh, just water? Oh, get a fruit salad yeah. and, like, I'll tell you the quality of the restaurant just by the percentage of melon. Wow. <laughs> Gauntlet thrown. Oh, wow. oh, no. Okay, if we had a food segment, yeah, anti melon. This is quickly turning into one. Yeah, Um, yeah. it's filler fruit. But yeah, it's filler fruit. Yeah, 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 it's copy paste fruit. It's bad. It's like onions for vegetables. For all the melons listening, I apologize. Um, (laughs) (laughs) what did you think of DC? Was this your first time in DC? It was my first. uh, It was my first time in DC. Did you like it? I liked it very much. It was great. Um, The one thing that was bad, it was not a fault of DC. Or, or my hosts. It was that the day we scheduled to go to yeah. the mall, it was like a swirling, wet snowstorm. It was the first day of the Nor'easter. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. It was really cold. And Sarah and I were like, no, we're going to do it. We're on, we're on fucking vacation. We're yeah. doing it. It's just like death marching <laughs> through the fucking snow. And we're like, that's that monument. Great. We saw it. Next one. Yep. <laughs> like, uh, and it was pretty intense. Uh, I'm glad I saw all this stuff because I'd never seen it before. It's cool. Um, we did the museums. We did Air and Space, which was amazing. Unbelievably cool. Uh, we went into one of the galleries, which was really cool. Yeah. I liked it all. Uh, I, I probably am not high class enough for the level of art we saw, but I was definitely uh, a child enough for uh air and space at one point i looked i was looking at the list of museums and i saw a spy museum and like i'm like oh spy museum cool and laura's like it's kind of geared towards kids and then in my head i'm like oh yeah we shouldn't go but in my head i'm like right yeah no. oh cool yeah sweet i won't be right. bored yeah spy it's a museum. fucking it's, it, spy it, it, museum it's a private museum it's like 20 bucks to get in it's not like a smithsonian yeah, yeah she didn't want to pay either yeah. which is also respectful but in my head i'm like yeah i'm not classy <laughs> i like yeah like what did she think do i get thought? to dress up oh it's not as a, a spy it's not a spy museum geared for adults like i didn't you know i didn't expect it to actually be. there is one the nsa has a museum but you have to drive like an hour outside of it. i feel like that is now just they a have an enigma machine there uh <laughs> like illegal immigrants it's an enigma machine yeah i don't know that i it, love that it stopped hitler all right and i will say that in our hot takes on ice uh flood craft episode where we talked about the excessiveness of craft beer yeah uh i did try at that restaurant where i had the goza mm. a new belgium chocolate chip cookie dough beer Oh, is that the one? That was the one. Oh. That was the one. And what'd you and, give that? Uh, I gave it a two, yeah. but only because Adam looked horrified that I ordered it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was not a two, Adam. It was clearly a one. Right. I was trolling you. And <laughs> How's that feel, Adam? I was trying to break your monocle there. How's it feel and when I think people it troll you, Adam? Because you were disgusted by the act of me drinking it. Uh, so it got a two based solely on monocle snapping. Love it. Uh, but, it, yeah, it was clearly one. It was a affront to God and man um, and should not have happened. Right. But uh, that's not the fault of D.C. No. Not D.C. Brewery. I just got it at a restaurant. Get in DC. there, DC. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, I don't like cities. I've never been to a city that were a heavily populated city that I've enjoyed. I spent some time in DC for a conference a few years back, and it was like fucking mind blowing how much I liked it. We went to cool areas. I drank a ton of good bourbon. Uh, I, go DC is how I feel about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad I didn't get into the African American Museum. Yeah, uh, because but you know it was a nor'easter outside, and the line was around the block. Right, and I was cold. Right, and. 
That's how those. I'm happen. a wimp, regardless of the ethnicity of your museum, right? Uh, just all the time. Yep. So it was it was time to leave. Uh, but we marched we marched up and down the mall, and mm-hmm. then and then we uh, we lifted back, and then it was it was fucking fantastic. Laura and Adam are great cooks. We had home cooked meals the entire time. Awesome. It was uh, he gave me some McKellen. Uh, I want to say it was 16. Yeah, sure. It was amazing. I yeah. And I didn't know it could exist until we came back and Baz gave me a 21. 21. And then I was doubly amazed. Right. Um, and it was a fantastic trip. I couldn't recommend it more highly. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to grab another beer because God bless this thing's done. And uh, we're moving on. <laughs> Spencer, what are you drinking? All right. I I do not know how to say this, and I, I want to own that. It's a Vieux Provision. Probably not Provision, by the way. Cezanne Dupont. There we go. Cezanne Dupont. Oh. Um, it's brewed. Baguettes. It's brewed by Brasserie Barres Dupont and in shirts. Torpay, Belgium. Or Torp. Or Torps. I don't know. I've never sounded more ignorant. <laughs> and I made a whole list of Tarantino films that nobody liked, you dicks. All right. This podcast is coming from Missouri. So I'm going gonna, gonna to try this thing now. It's a product of Belgium, if I haven't made that clear. Mm. Well, mm, hey, compared to what I was drinking, it's, it's a 10. Uh, <laughs> which would probably just be another cat, I guess. But... Um, <laughs> That's that's straight. That's good. I don't know. I guess it's a weasel ball. Um, I, I'm a little bit like you. I don't love saisons. It's just not, yeah. not really my thing. I'll say this kind of interestingly. Not that I know this, but the nose is is very floral, and it almost has like a marijuana smell to it on the nose. So I don't know. Whatever that's about. Cool Belgium. Uh, but the beer's fine. Is how I feel about that. Try it. I've admitted to too much now. But yeah, look, you get that thing up in there, and it's like, oh, I know that smell. Have you smoked the devil's lettuce? I know that smell. Hmm. And then it's and then it's kind of a a, a you know weedy thick uh, saison on the back, which it does fine. smell a little like a teen. I'm about to send to an office. That's right. That's <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. It smells like all the people that just walked. I'm in about to get to real into that beer's face. Be like, did you do your homework? Because uh-huh. uh-huh. I know they're. Not going to handle that well. So while you're I super trooper, <laughs> you're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. While I drink this, what are we talking about? We are going to talk about in Ask Mixed Six uh, a question from Sam B. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam B. Uh, oh my God, do you think it's Samantha B? Yes, clearly. I fucking knew it. I've been making our, jokes our, for months that we have a talented pool of audience members. Now we have proof. Really digging the show. Thanks, Sam. Keep it up. Yep. Uh, We dig you. Here's the question. Uh, The heart of being a nerd is obsession with a particular subject. Do these obsessions need to come from you by circumstance? Or can slash should you cultivate them by choice? Yeah. Super cool question. It's a very interesting question. So, yeah. What it's it's asking us to evaluate is are, are your nerd obsessions necessarily about your circumstance or are they about your choice to kind of go off and find things and let those things flourish for you and become some obsession and i i so i i'm gonna give a really shitty cop-out answer here if i'm being totally honest i think it's a little bit of both and i know that's like the worst thing to say because sam b probably samantha the tbs star who has a wonderful show we assume 
is definitely looking for us to, to, to treat this as a dichotomy. It's either or. I just don't think that it is. So, like, for example, uh, one of my nerd obsessions is Superman. Uh, actually, I, ca- I can say on, on, on one hand, my nerd obsessions as a child, Ghostbusters, Superman, Beetlejuice, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Cloak and Dagger. Okay, and if you've not watched Cloak and Dagger, we're not friends. That's how I feel about that. Damn, we're going to get into that at some point. Right. Some of these are very much a product of stuff that my mom was into. Uh, she's a massive Ghostbusters fan, and so she wanted me to see Ghostbusters at an early age. Bingo, bango. God bless her. God bless Doing my the Lord's mom. work. Now Ghostbusters is my favorite film of all time, right? Yeah. You know, the other part of it is, like, we weren't particularly well off. We, you know, there were a couple of years of, like, struggle in there where mom was, like, busting her ass as a single mom to get stuff done. So it's not like we could go find all of the other stuff. But whatever she could provide me with that was enjoyable for a child, she would. And so these were the things. I would go to uh, Blockbuster Video, but actually it was Box Office Movies, I think, was, like, the little knockoff chain in Blue Springs, Missouri. Um and we would rent Superman 1 or Superman 2, like, week in and week out on Friday nights. And that's what we do. That would be, like, the big thing for the week. And then yeah. Mom and I would watch Superman. So in, in some ways, this is a circumstance thing that became a choice thing, right? Mm-hmm. Circumstance dictated we had a limited number of options available. Inside those limited number of options, I kind of clung to some stuff. And so those became the things that I chose. Yeah. Now that I'm not as limited by socioeconomic circumstances... And most people aren't. Right. And the internet has made all of nerddom available to almost everyone. Mm-hmm. Have I found myself straying strongly from those circumstantial things which have defined the bulk of my life to these kind of like freewheeling, I don't know, let's fucking try this things? No. I haven't. And maybe that's because I'm like inherently conservative by nature, not politically, but at least I like what I like and I don't really like going beyond that because yeah. I'm comfortable that way. So my choices are largely circumstantial. I'll admit that. But I feel like I've had a, a modicum of choice in there. How about you? I'm going to say that you're not wishy-washy in choosing your middle road here. Because okay. I think if insofar as nerd culture exists right. and insofar as it has a problem, it might be perhaps in the way that Sam B. phrased the question. Not because Sam B. holds that dichotomy in their mind. Right. But because uh, the idea that like you need to come by it honest – whatever the hell mm, that mm-hmm, means, mm-hmm. it's really poisonous right. in nerd culture. Like yeah. You need to have a, certain, a requisite amount of suffering during high school years right. to be into a nerd thing. And then like, also a sufficient level of autonomy and freedom to then go find this other thing. Yeah, and, and then like you can't research or something. Because like, I think it's ultimately always a choice between circumstance sure. and research and choice. Like So, um, I mean, presumably, a lot of those kids that were making fun of you for your Yu-Gi-Oh cards, if you want to be like a hardcore neckbeard, no one's allowed in the club unless you, you know, blood in kind of shit. Um, a lot of those kids knew what Yu-Gi-Oh was, and they chose not to get into it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you knew what Yu-Gi-Oh was, and you chose to get into it. But there's still a level level of circumstance into that. So I was listening to this uh, Cracked podcast where David Wong was talking about John G's, not real names, but yeah. they're two of the most popular writers on the internet. Um, and they were kind of just talking about like their life in rural Illinois, and like if it was me and my buddies from Jeffco. Holy shit. It was like a podcast we could have had. It was amazing. And they were talking about uh, among the midgety tragedies of rural Illinois and like being poor as they were was that so much of your personality is defined by things you like and things you enjoy. Sure. And when you are sort of isolated from any and all culture like that and when uh, you sort of are devoid of choices with which to define yourself like that, it is sort of like existentially damaging in addition to logistically and like, uh, you know, 
sheer subsistence damaging. So yeah. they're talking about like the way that when you were 10 years old, before you would, six years before you would drive anything and before you had any concept of what it meant, regardless of how much of a gearhead your fathers were, yeah. you were asked in their town to pick where you were a Chevy or a Ford man. And that was a literal tribe, mm-hmm. like a literal tribe in which you got fights over and like came up with like l- clever little limerick poems about how the other people were bad. And because well, that was. motorheads do, they come up with poems. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, like shit that like Ford stands for. Yeah. Uh, and like, and they just exchanged all these horrible, like homophobic acronyms that they heard and that I heard too. And like, he's really, he's like, it's, it's a obliterating your chances for an identity. Like sure. you have, you have this one metric of like cars, people own yep. trucks, people own. Yep. And that is the one mode of differentiation in your culture that like has no access to literature or movies or television mm-hmm. beyond the three basic channels or anything like that. Cause they're going up in like the eighties and nineties, you know, pre affordable cable, pre VCR. Right. And so, to me, like, it is always a matter of circumstance because it's be a matter of what you're available to. Like, yeah. if you have this certain level like that. And, like, I, I just got done hanging out with Tom, and Tom came um, from a little worse off financial uh, origin than I did, even yeah. though he makes, like, four times as much money now. Way to bootstrap Tom. Get him. Um, and he's really deeply into – he played video games and shit with me, but – he wasn't that into it. And I don't think it's like because Tom was not into video games. It's just like he didn't have a lot of spare money lying right. around. He was really into music, and his dad owned a music store. And so he got into the nerdy shit that was available to him through circumstance, yeah. and he chose to do it. So right. I, I, I think it's I think it's sort of a false dichotomy, so to speak. Right. And I think that the false dichotomy exists. I don't think you're making it up, Sam B. I no, think absolutely. it exists, and yeah. some people think it's real. And I will say it's not a wishy-washy, pancakey answer to say, like, you got to go the middle road, because the middle road makes you actively not shitty and, like, sort of judging who is in and who is out and who's a real nerd right. and yeah. who's not. Like, that, and that's partially that's what I'm trying to avoid. The, the other thing that I'm trying to avoid is drawing, like, uh, clear bright lines in my head around why I got into things as if I can really understand in some ways like the ultimate motive there, right? So for example, I would say if there's been one change in my approach to doing obsession-like nerd things over 30 years, it's that as I've become more capable socioeconomically because now that I have a job that pays me regular human money uh, and I'm an adult uh, with ostensibly more free will than I was when I was an eight-year-old child, if anything, I have found myself doing more nerdy things now at 30, he said, on a reasonably nerd-oriented podcast than I did when I was 10 years old. And I don't know if that's choice. I don't know if that's circumstance. Again, part of my ability to do more nerd things. For example, I didn't get into Magic the Gathering until I was 22, 23. Uh, I didn't play my first... I think like, you hit poker and then went... Yeah, to magic. From I did. There. Yeah, I did Texas Hold'em first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and thought the the concept of Magic the Gathering was odd to me. I was well, you know, I was in grad school before I got into Magic the Gathering. Um, I uh, didn't really do the board game thing uh, until I was in grad school in Lawrence, the second round of grad school. I was like kind of well beyond the age where people in, are introduced to games for the first time and then get into games. Uh, I I didn't I, do the board game thing until you moved back here. Right. And I didn't do the RPG thing until I was 26. I didn't I didn't even consider... Pl- I mean, look, I did a little Dungeons & Dragons for funsies in grad school just because I had some friends who were into it, but I didn't really get into at the level of understanding RPGs until I moved back, and even then it was a couple years in before I started spending time with the both of you playing an RPG at this table or now playing an RPG on behalf of the podcast. So... 
So I would say, if anything, that as I have had, and again, not to create a strict line between choice and circumstance, because I think these things are intimately bound, as the circumstances have allowed me the freedom of more choice, I have expanded my nerd horizons rather than constricted, constricted or contracted them to specific things. I'm more willing to kind of play in different nerd universes now because I have a little more flexibility economically or culturally or whatever to try those things. I guess for me, that's the best best way that I can not say I'm sitting on the fence about this because I think the fence is where reality is and say that, yeah, but beyond the fence, here are some things that I can point to that seem reasonably autonomous or free and get me to more choice than circumstance. Yeah, and like I have less RPG experience than almost anyone I ever meet. Like there, there are very few people who have more RPG experience than me, despite the fact that I'm like writing them at this point. Yeah, because like everyone's like, oh, I played D and D with my brother when I was six. Yeah, like, and everyone's got this like heritage. It was in my blood right. from the star stories. Yeah, and I'm just like I tried right. for a number of years, could never get a group. I put it away. Then I got into girls in college and thought it would be bad, and I couldn't get girls without it. And then I forgot about it. And then I approached it in 26. I don't feel less nerdy for that because I think intensities. No. I feel like intensities a matter. Yeah, like I, dude, I eat, sleep, and breathe some RPG, son. Like multiple podcasts, right. writing books. Right. Like I'm after it, and like I sometimes get shit like like when I'll be like this '90s game was stupid. I'll get shit like you don't understand. You didn't see Blade in the theaters. Right. You you didn't live in like rural Ohio and and need to wear a trench coat and like all. And I was like. No, man, I'm not going back in time and saying it was shitty for you in 1996. Right, right. I'm saying it's shitty now in 2017. And there's a different aspect to that. And I'm not blaming you. I, I get it. So, like, making this sort of, like, artificial separation between circumstances and researching. Like, you know what? If you mention Doctor Who a lot and your friend goes out and starts watching the fuck out of Doctor Who because they don't know what the hell you're talking about, that is nerdy and admirable yeah like like that is being a cool friend good for you thank you for doing that you were meeting me halfway they're not posing they're not trying to get into the nerd cred because like no insofar as the term is useful you can at least bank on for the most part yeah no one is gaining financially or socially from engaging in the space right they are doing so out of love or out of genuine curiosity and there's nothing nerdier than love and genuine curiosity right to your point and this is the last thing I'll say on this. I, I think the notion then that one should draw lines of acceptability and unacceptability around what one has chosen, assuming that it was a choice, not a circumstantial issue, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Um, and I'm kind of moved by that because I, I think back over what I was capable of doing and what I chose to do and where those two things uncomfortably interact with one another and what that might say about social acceptance or social standing at a given time. Yeah, here's the thing. There's some nerdy shit that you approach through circumstance that yeah. you should abandon because it's dumb. That's right. That's, that's right. my hot take some, on this. Some, some shit just sucks. Like, it goes both directions. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good reading of that. And on that note, on to more beers, on to more stuff. We'll see you in just a minute. What you uh, what you getting into there, Caleb? I'm about to drink Bell's Cherry Stout. God, Bell's makes good beer. It does, and I've never seen a cherry stout before, well, which is what prompted well, me to snatch it off. Really the shelf. get into so it. That Bell's Two Hearted Ale is legit. Okay, he's going in. Looks happy. Looks happy. Looks sad. Ooh, looks inquisitive. 
I need a second. I need a second. Whoa, need, going I back. Need to get back in. Oh my god. Button down the hatches, folks. I'm thinking this is a four or a five. <sighs> Mouse on a string. Whoa. Five. We got a five, people. Okay, cherry's quickly becoming my favorite, like, wild card ingredient in beers. It is And wild. a cherry stout. Just try it. I'm going to try it. It, it, it cuts in into the thickness in of a there. stout. I like the scent. I like that give scent. It a sh- give it a shot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... That's a stout I could drink while mowing the lawn. You know what? And like it's crazy. It almost has like a like a wine like quality on the back end. But it's uh, yeah, I'm not like wine but drunk. It's not I'm not fighting you, right? Yeah. Oh uh, man, no, it's good. Bells, no. yeah. Mouse well, on a string. Polite golf clap for bells. Yeah, that's good really, job. really, really nice. D- that could have gone wrong in a lot of ways, and you you just you shot the moon there. Good yeah. job, bells. Really happy about what's happened here. Anyways, we're on to fifth segment. If you're with us for the free version, this is the last segment you're going to get from us. We hope it's a doozy for you and would encourage you to make this not the last segment on Patreon. But if it is, thanks so much for listening. Anyways, this is Armchair Director. It's our movie segment. And I have been particularly struck by the recent emergence of a new trailer, It. It has shaken me to my core. And it's shaken me to my core for two reasons. One, and I'm just going to I'm gonna get real with you people, and if you're sticking around for drunk enough next, you're going to hear about my irrational fear of clowns. But my mother... It's not irrational. But. Okay, thank you. <laughs> who is a warrior, thought that it would be... My mom thinks It is funny, and so she had me watch It for the first time at three years old. So from like three to, I don't know, I don't want to be too aggressive here, 29, I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself or be in the dark. <laughs> Because fucking clowns, all right? Wait, wait, wait. So how old were you when mom brought this home? Three. (laughs) I got it at three, the shining at four or five, and the exorcist at seven. That was a goddamn mistake. Damn! Yeah, man. She just, that was a fucking crucible. Yeah, by like ten, I was like walking around elementary school like, listen, pansy. I was like cutting kids and stuff for fun to let (laughs) them know. it is funny if you're an adult. Right. Like, and like the idea, and you've read the novel, and you're like, oh, it's a telekinetic spider. Spider, that's fucking stupid. That's the trick. And you know how it ends. Yeah, but if you're three? Yeah. Right. Shit, that might be child abuse. It's That's just crazy. All the fucking fun circus stuff is not fun circus stuff anymore, is what happens at three years old. Okay? So I say all this knowing that when someone told me they were remaking it, that got real. I thought, what motherfucker has read my diary? Okay? Um, having said that, so, so thing one, reason it's shaking me to my core is because it literally defined the nightmares of my childhood. Second reason it shook me to my core, and at the crux of this conversation this afternoon slash evening, is. Look, it's just a trailer, I know that. But it looks fucking excellent. Mm. I have watched this trailer more and more than I have watched many movies I really enjoy. No, it's solid. And it's for a trailer that is a remake of a film that ruined me as as a child and partially Not as even an adult. really a film. Like right. a miniseries. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. a CBS miniseries. Yeah, they literally reshot a CBS like, I think it was CBS miniseries with the guy from Wings. No, that's the shining I'm thinking it's of. It's probably it's not still, CBS, but right. Uh, I will hear about it in the comments and be shamed. Yeah, Congrats listen, series. okay, we're all on the same page here. Tom Curry's great. Okay, so let's get over that. Yeah. But having said that. <laughs> whoa, yeah, whoa, okay. Whoa. Kind of. Having said that, um, I, what struck me about this is why the fuck? So we are in an age of remakes. That's all we're doing now. I mean, that is literally the only thing that Hollywood is producing anymore. 
Uh, no, Boss Baby. Yeah, so remakes. Oh wait, no, that's a, that's a re- that's adapted from a uh, child's book. How's so, that feel? Right? Burden Hell uh, producer. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It beat Ghost in the Shell for, for box ro- office. For reminding Get snarky me that movie again, exists. producer Roth. Professionals, fuck. All right. Uh, what does a remake need to do? And it looks like this one's going to do it to be successful. Versus, why do most remakes just fucking fall on their face? All right, so I think about this. All the goddamn time. Of course you And do. I totally agree with you that it looks like it might have it. Oh, my God. Um, but, I mean, I could be completely wrong about this, but that's a solid fucking trailer. So here's the thing. I think a remake needs to fundamentally correct, update, or add to whatever original film it was adapting. Now, I'm not talking about the transfer, and I think you can only go one transfer at a time. You can't argue like, Stephen King's novel to film because that transition was done and it doesn't appear like they're doing that transition or like go and they're at least not advertising as like we're going back to the source material which is another way to do it but then you get with like Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka and no thank you no like sometimes that's the bad idea it's not a bad idea every time other things that scarred me as a as a medium adult (laughs) things that scarred me Johnny Depp's Willy Wonka (laughs) yeah um but I think it needs to fundamentally update. So, like, for me, if I look at quintessential, like, remake that needed to exist, um, I think of Ocean's Eleven, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a film that is infinitely better in terms of, like, just sheer craft right. than the original for the fact that it's directed by Soderbergh. Yeah. Then it's a film that originated in starring a large part of the Rat Pack is a commentary on celebrity culture. Sure. And then to load the cast like that and continue loading the, load cast, the cast like that, it is a still a commentary on celebrity culture, but a commentary that has a whole new meaning yeah. because of like the way that's progressed. That is a remake that is not only acceptable, it is essential. Like, mm. remaking that original thing, the sort of metatextual reference it has to the original is integral to the meaning of the piece as it exists now. Yeah. And that's the thing. And here's the thing. The It miniseries has a great many things going for it. Special effects, not one of them. No. Um, no, the animatronic acting, spider is... aside from Tim Curry... Ab- abhorrent. Not one of them. Okay, I'll give John Ritter... I'm a fan of John Ritter, but like not there. he does the sort of like, yeah, he's been better. That's right, but it's serviceable. It's cer- get it, yeah, and that's be, the thing. Right. It's a TV miniseries, serviceable. So like, if you can like up the level of quality of acting there, if you can up the level of effects, I think that alone is worth it. But here's the other thing: I think it was before its time, both for Stephen King and especially on primetime TV. Sure. Because it is a form of fucking existential horror. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that clown in your brain isn't real, but it's real enough to kill you. Because it's a giant alien spider that lives in the sewers beneath your town that wants to fucking eat you. And like, oh, yeah, when you fucking got rid of it one time, doesn't matter. It's a giant alien spider. It's going to come. It's going to wake up and go after you. Like, that is some Lovecraftian cosmic horror level shit. Yeah. And I think that's entered the lexicon of culture now in multiple ways, sure. in multiple sneaky ways. Uh, what's that book about, like, stealing... Is it called Stealing Lovecraft or Stealing Cthulhu? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, about the ways that Lovecraft has sort of sneakily infiltrated culture. 
I think we're at a better place to receive it in a cinematic medium than sure. we ever were before, aside uh, from the updates to the acting, the effects. So I think it's a worthwhile remake, is what I'm saying. That's reasonable. Yeah, but the, based the, on what I've seen so far. The thing for me, so I think, especially it feels like over the last couple of years, and maybe this is just, the genre is more ripe for it than other genres, but it seems like the bulk of the remakes we get are in the horror genre. So the you know there was a Nightmare on Elm Street what two or three years ago. Yeah, feels like major. But there was that Friday the Thirteenth. Friday Texas the 13th, Chainsaw. That's right, Texas Chainsaw. Friday the Thirteenth. Um, it feels like also Rob Aren't Zombie. Are they remaking Ring? Is a, yes, is a which is actually the third time because the Japanese right. and the American yeah. remake from ten years ago and now a new one. Feels like Rob Zombie's attached to an inordinate amount of these projects. Neither here <laughs> nor there, I suppose. Um, it feels like for a lot of those remakes, the reasons why I didn't find them particularly interesting is that they just said, "Well, here's the source material. Let's just do the source material harder." So let's be more gruesome or more weird or more uh, psycho thriller with no nuance, no attempt at doing something different or new, just doing more. And, and God, I hope they don't do that in it. But here's why I don't think they're going to. They don't have Tim Curry. They can't. No, no, not, not, not just that. Not the callbacks, not like making it gory or things right. like that. Here's the thing. They're splitting it like the narrative in the book, Which is but they're splitting it into two fucking movies. I can't believe that. And here's the thing. The movie that exists first, the movie we have the trailer for, is like this sort of nostalgia childhood, we still ride fucking bikes right. level shit. Well, they updated it from the 50s to the 80s. Right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. That's right. the point. And here's the thing. It, in many ways, is about nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Like, sure. as a book. And like, at what culture of remakes is it better to make a horror movie about nostalgia? Yeah. The terrors of childhood revisiting you and the dark side of nostalgia that is not good. That is, your past was a fucking horror show and here it comes again for you. What better time to release a movie like that than 2017 in which we remake fucking everything? Literally In which the TVs are like boomer, like, like... You know, playing a song for them as they enter the long night. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. who isn't this comforting? The nerds are still terrible. Go right. to sleep, right. Grandma. Like that fucking shit. What better point to do that than here? Like, so the uh, I think the quintessential source material touches on a theme that needs to be said in 2017. Right, and they're additionally updating some necessary flaws in the original due right. to budget, due to. Things like that. So I'm fucking psyched for it. it. It seems like everything a remake needs to be, other than like Halloween, which is not like we don't live in Reagan era. Like no. everyone's going to come to murder us shit anymore. Yeah. We're not scared of like people that are like have mental illness quite as much as we were in the 80s anymore. Like it doesn't work. Right. It doesn't work in that era. Uh, I like this. I like that you've pulled this theme through though, this notion of uh, really intentionally confronting something from the past. And saying, this is the thing from the past. Now, here's my comment on the thing from the past while I'm enacting it. Because that, for me, and, and I don't know that these fall into the category of remake. They're probably like reboot or just commentary on. But like 21 Jump Street, for example, which came out a couple of years ago with Channing Tatum and yeah. uh, Jonah Hill. And I'll accept that as a remake because it's a takedown. Right. Like it's, it's, a, uh, it's a remake as a takedown, right. as, a, as a critique of the original. But that's what it is, This is a though, stupid right? fucking concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, it's, but it's also a stupid – but part of the take there down there is not just it's a stupid fucking concept, but also that the notion of the remake in principle 
is kind of fucking stupid. Yeah. That one could not come up with source material beyond. And again, so it draws from this, here is a fixed thing in the past that I now want to work from. And the approach is different than the horror approach, which is to add a layer of or a direct comment to, and instead just say this fucking thing is ridiculous in the first place, as is the act of. So I guess what I'm kind of also interested in is that it feels like they could have just made a shot-for-shot remake of the It trailer. And there are a lot of similarities. You can actually watch them side by side, and there are some nice things here and there. Part of the shot-for-shot stuff is really nice. It's referential. But it feels referential in an honorary sense. I understand the past. And not as like, uh, hey, this is the only way we're marketing this. That's right. Not as a a Watchmen-like (laughs) frame-for-frame remake of The Thing. Yeah, exactly. We're rebooting this because we need to sell things, and people like watching scary shit. And what I love about it is like the arc of... The second part of it, the at least adult part of it, is letting go of nostalgia. Right, and that's how we will approach it. Because nostalgia is a fucking coping mechanism. Nostalgia is bullshit, and it's a fantasy. And and in order for these adults to survive, they have to get over the fact that they've, like, glossed over the existential cosmic horror they've dealt with as preteens. And, like, been like, no, it was just a great main... Yeah, you know, young yep. suburban we upbringing, really liked dairy. and like, yeah, just fucking getting and like, I, I love that. That's like also what the audience needs to do, right? Like, that's that's fucking great. Like, right. that's a solid pick for. A I'm the thirty year old. I'm the adult in the second version of it, looking back on my childhood ruined by it. Uh, the the one thing I will say about it is like it kind of reminds me of Gladiator. Not that Gladiator was a remake, but Gladiator was a film in a genre that was completely dead. The gladiator genre. Sword and sandal. Yeah, sword and sandal, gladiator genre. And why did Scott bring it back? Mm -hmm. He brought it back to make a commentary about spectacle, about professional sports, as it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And he makes a solid movie that's also thematically resonant with the times. I really feel like it's that sort of impulse. Like, we need to tell this story now for reasons that are inherent in this story, beyond the fact that I would like more money from a Spider-Man right. movie. And that's that for you is kind of, that, right, that's what I'm hearing. That, that, that's what I, if you're going to do an era to era, right. if you're going to do, this movie was made, I'm going to make another movie later, remake, not like a book to film adaptation, yeah. not like a, oh, Americans can't read subtitles or don't like British ass- accents, so let's redo Death at a Funeral. Not that shit. Right. But if you're going to do a time period to time period translation, that needs to be it. There needs to be something implicit in the story, and you need to emphasize that for the time in which you're making it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm for that. I'm totally you know, for that. Go ahead. One thing I, I find interesting is horror um, uses media technology in, uh, in interesting ways, and there's always, I, I call it like the flea market rule, where the scariest technology is the one you see in flea markets because, like, think back to the '90s. There, there was uh, the Nicolas Cage movie Eight Millimeter, which yeah, is about him finding just a snuff film. Yeah, but yeah. it's an eight millimeter right, film. Right. But you don't see eight millimeter films in flea markets anymore. You see VHS tapes and yeah. slide projectors. And so now, what's the scary media? VHS tapes, which which you don't see in it, but I bet there's going to be a VHS tape uh, scary. Well, they're, scene. they're using the slide projector, yeah, yeah. and they're I mean, using yeah, slide projector. Yeah. So it's, like, it's more archaic, right? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. it's less archaic, but it's 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 weird. It, people, young people who see it will recognize it, you know, uh, and but like won't be familiar with it. To be clear, they won't recognize it. An error <laughs> of the distant past. Well, yeah. they'll be able to Google it, you know, and yeah. like whereas a film is going to be so removed, right? 
that they're not going to recognize it at all. Yeah, so. there's a sense of attachment to the relic, right? Like if the relic is so it, too well, detached. It, ha- it has to be old, but it can't be too old. Right, exactly. Because if it's too old, it's just weird. That's right. But it that's, has to that's, be, the, that's the theory of it. History yeah. is a right. nightmare. Yeah, that's right. And like that's the best part about King's book right. is that like your personal history – your interior memory yeah. is in itself part of that historical nightmare right. of what, and I fucking loved it. like it. It rehabilitates that like abacuses are old; they must be terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, re- yeah. it rehabilitates that trope of just like the old is inherently scary by like incorporating in the narrative. It's like yeah, the old is inherently scary, including the old you. That's right, including your old experience, yeah. including. And I, I just fucking love that. It's, yeah. So like, I know I'm probably reading too much into it. This this movie or this pair of movies could totally fucking. Flop. I've already decided it's great, but yeah, 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 that's the thing. I've already decided it's great too. Right. Yeah, and like bare minimum, I can at least say this. Good job picking it. If it's shit, yep. marketing director, because like I've already done all of your work for you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, of all the things you could have picked from King, which is literally everything, right, mm-hmm. to redo, there's something weird. May- maybe it's the campiness of it in the first place that makes me infinitely more open to a remake, uh, I think given what it is you've identified, than, for example, The Shining. Which for me would not would not which would be like we're gonna do a shot for shot remake of Psycho. That's right. Great, congrats for you. I'm so scared of Vince Vaughn. Vince Vaughn. Right. Jesus. I almost said Vincent D'Onofrio, knowing that no, because that would have been frightening. Because that would have been frightening. But yeah. no, it was way worse than that. It was Vince Vaughn. It was Vince Vaughn of old school. It was one of the. It and was the a wedding crasher. Yeah. Yes, that's right. No. Hey, look, if you've stayed with us this long, uh, but you're not going any farther, thanks so much for listening. These were the five beers that you get before you become a patron. If you'd like access to Drunk Enough, which is our sixth beer, or access to Hot Takes on Ice, or access to the forthcoming Education of Spencer Harris, which we introduced in the last episode, which is our new RPG segment where we get drunk and play an RPG. You're always welcome to back us on Patreon at the $1, $2, up to $6 level. Uh, if you're not following on Twitter at the Mix Six or on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Mix Six, you definitely should be. We thank you so much for your time. And if you're sticking with us for more, we're going to grab some beers and we'll be back after the break. <laughs>